This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you already knew that when you tuned in. I've got a great guest today. We're talking about farm finances. We're talking about how things look out here in the land of agriculture. We've got land prices that are going up at record amounts. We've got high commodity prices. We've got, according to one webinar that I saw from the Purdue University School of Agricultural Economics, we've got record amounts of dollars being made per acre. Things seem to be pretty good out here, but But you know what? A smart person in business told me a long time ago, just because things look good, be sure to open a hood and really check what's happening down there under the under the car under the carburetor. Watch under the hood and see what's happening. Usually that means in money, we gotta look at what's actually happening on the money side. Are there defaults? Do farm operators have it so good that they're not even using operating money? What's it really look like and what are the experts saying? I've got one of those experts here. His name is Tim Cook. Tim Cook is the Chief Credit Officer for Farm Credit Services of America. Farm Credit Services of America is a client of mine. I've spoken to their uh, audiences and customers and, and employees a number of times. I'm with them now in Western Nebraska. Tim and uh, the Farm Credit Service of America team cover about five states. Uh, and you can help me out here, Tim. It's uh, Nebraska, Kansas, or part of Kansas, part of Iowa, or most of Iowa, uh, South Dakota, and I believe Wyoming. Am I right? You've got it right. Okay. All right. So, Chief Credit Officer, you've been with Farm Credit Services for 20-some years. Yep, 22 years. All right. So, you, you know numbers. You know money. And then you've got a lot of money that's out there. Just real quickly, most people probably are familiar with Farm Credit Services. Uh, a little over 100 years ago, the government sort of set up the this thing uh through an act of Congress, if I'm not mistaken, that created the farm credit system. Kind of give us the background on that and then tell us what your book looks like. Yeah, so the farm credit system was created to ensure a reliable supply of funds to finance agriculture. So 100 years ago, uh, based on an act from Congress, uh, the farm credit system was created. Farm Credit Services America organization represents about $40 billion um, that we have lent across primarily those four and a third states that you referenced, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Wyoming, and the eastern third of Kansas. Okay, you've got about $40 billion in agricultural loans outstanding right this minute. That's correct. Okay, so and by the way, dear listener, we're recording this in uh, summer of 2022, so these numbers could sound paltry in another couple of years under inflation. $40 billion might be like <laughs> what you take to go and fill your truck up with gas. Um, $40 billion is a lot of money right now as we're recording this. Um, okay, real crop. Uh, obviously, some cow-calf uh, yeah. feed yards. Our, our portfolio re- really mirrors agriculture in those four states. So of that, 
Um, about 35% of that is row crops. So primarily corn and soybeans, a little bit of wheat. Um, about 15% of that would be uh, on the swine side of, of our business. 10% uh, feed yards, uh, another 10% uh, feed yards and cow-calf. And then the balance would be diversified agriculture, things that we may not necessarily originate in our footprint, but uh, through purchase participations, uh, both within community banks, uh, money center banks, and also other members of the farm credit system. Okay, you're one of the biggies. I mean, there's, I don't know for sure how many farm credits there are. I've uh, done business with a number of them speaking. I've also done business with them as a lender. Uh, farm Credit Services Mid-America there in Indiana is one of the biggies as well. What, there's like 45, 50 of your groups? Yeah, there's about 60, between 60 and 65 associations uh, geographically. Our organization would be the largest at, you know, about 40 uh, billion dollars. Uh, Mid-America would come in next and they're in the upper 20s. Okay. Just to give you a sense. Okay. Um, dealing with my little part of the world, it uh, looks like things are good. Uh, you know, I rent my farm ground to a large-scale dairy operator. Milk prices are up. Granted, he's paying more for feed and he's paying more for fuel, but also, it's, you know, if if you're uh, if you're going to be paying uh, a hell of a lot for inputs, at least your uh, your output is also worth more. Corn and soybeans are near record territory. Wheat is in stratospheric territory. Things look pretty good at the farm gate to me from a financial standpoint. What am I not seeing, or am I seeing it pretty much for what it is? No, I think you're seeing that correctly. Uh, agricultural commodity prices are really, really strong. And, you know, while we've seen increases, you know, all the press is the increase in input costs, mm-hmm. fertilizer, fuel, uh, you name it. But with commodity prices where they're at, there's still profit margin to be had across, you know, most, if not all of those sectors that we've we've, we've mentioned so far. <clears throat> where is their pain? Where I've, I'm told that tree products, especially in California, but that's a regulatory issue as much as it is anything, tree products, almonds, even fruits and whatnot are in the herd. Am I right in hearing that? Yeah, we, we don't have a lot of visibility into permanent plantings. We have some, but you're, you're right. Um, I think if there's some stress in agriculture, there's some areas of permanent planting. Uh, that's a, a demand issue. It's a logistics issue to get it to, to where they where they need to be. In California, situation is a regulatory or water issue. Wa- yeah. Water is a big, big issue. Is water an issue here? You, know, you, you represent, we're, we're in western Nebraska right now, where I think they probably get about... 12 to 14 inches of rain a year maybe uh, and uh, is water an issue in your footprint well w- water by in and of itself is not necessarily an issue because mm-hmm. most of uh, the water is either groundwater or you know rainfall mm-hmm. now rainfall is an issue uh, we're in the middle of a drought in the western part of our geography um, you know, as, as, as we're out here in the uh, first part of June, things look pretty green right now. We've seen a little bit of rain, so grass is greening up and uh, pastures are off to a good start. But one of my biggest fears uh, as we go through this year, especially where we've got a lot of ranching operations, is will they need to supplement um, pasture with, with hay? Those, you know, as almost all commodities are at 
yeah. astronomically high levels. Hay is no exception. Yes, yeah, so if you're a cow-calf operator, you rely on the fact that you don't have a lot of mechanical equipment because you're mostly just letting the, the cows do the work of going out and, and harvesting the stuff off the ground, and then you, you supplement with hay and, and, and such during the bad winter time. But yep. you're thinking that that might happen on drought issues. Um, <clears throat> are you, in your book, are you seeing pain? or Is the cow-calf sector feeling some pain at this point? Not, not at this point. You know, um, there, there may be some isolated instances where, severe drought we did see some cows um sold off last you know last summer but i would say all in all damien um our our portfolio is performing very very well our delinquency rates are as low as they've been you know in recent history um everything's performing pretty pretty well um, you're just old enough, uh, as am I, because you've got you've you've got about a thirty year career. So it tells me you're in your early mid fifties, about like me. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember the eighties. I remember that. Uh, I remember the eighties the uh, vividly. I remember the eighties very very well. I remember well-held farm operations that were multi-generational going broke. I remember us uh, operating on a shoestring because we didn't come from much. I remember the Christmas of about 85. The only present I got was a generic uh, Carhartt. What even a real Carhartt winter coat to go out and work on the farm. (laughs) Um, It was a Walls brand. Anyway, if you're a certain age, you hear the 80s and you start to shudder. But you also get far enough removed from it. You're like, ah, hell, that's not going to happen. Are we are we are things too good right now? Are we are we going to see five years from now? Does it look like 1981? I, I think what we're seeing today looks a lot more like 2012 than 1981. Okay. And the reason why I say, I mean, you can go back to 2012 and 2013. We saw really strong commodity prices, mm-hmm. really good profitability. Mm-hmm. What what came along? Agricultural real estate was at a at a. Uh, high water mark, of yep, course. Yep. Uh, you know, everything we had inflation and input costs. Um, and, and that was the real challenge is costs ratcheted up. You know, agriculture for a long, long time has always gone back to the marginal cost of production. Mm-hmm. It's a commodity business and margins, you know, over time tend to uh, to get thinner. And that's what happened in 2012. And it took us five or six years mm-hmm. for the cost to come back down in line and you have margins. Now let's compare that to to the 80s. By There's the way, a- by the way, I called the I said 2012 uh, a farm ground around the corner from me sold and some of you going to buy it and I said I've been telling my audiences we're at a high water mark, why would I then go and buy it at a peak? Mm-hmm. I was wrong. 2013 was the high water mark cuz 12 was a drought at least in my part of the world, but I still would have been okay had I bought something that that day. I would still be okay because we then went through a flattening for a while and then we're rolling again. So um, you're comparing this to 2012, 2013. That means that we've got a couple years of really good. Then we have another five years of sort of flattening and then we get really good again. That's not been the 100 year history, what you just described, if that's what's going to happen. That's not usually we're. 25, 35 years between really good. Sure, sure. Well, I think there was several dynamics with, which led us to really good. Mm-hmm. Pandemic, mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine. I mean, a lot of factors influence this run up in prices that I think we have, you know, we generally think about 30, 40, 50 years between black swan events. Mm-hmm. You could make an argument. We've had two of those in the last 
you know, three or four years. So pandemic, of course, and then uh, you're gonna call the wars happen all the time. I'm not sure that war, uh, Russia invading Ukraine, is completely a 50-year phenomenon. Wars happen all the time, but pandemic for sure. I could also say um, the uh, the massive amounts of money being blown or invested, depending on how you view it politically, is almost something that's been never happened before in our lifetime. Yeah. You put you put <clears throat> 6.7 trillion dollars into the economy. Um, we're going to see inflation, um, uh, yeah. and and that's what's you know led to these these prices we see. But before we move on from that, let's make one more parallel to the '80s. Yep. The things that are very different. There's mm-hmm. two primary things: mm-hmm. crop insurance, mm-hmm. if you're farming in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and fixed rate loans. If, yeah, if we so, look at what happened over the past three to four years, fixing interest rates on the real estate debt at historic low rates Mm -hmm. is going to pay dividends and provide a risk mitigant for probably the next 15 to 20 years while that debt exists, regardless of where rates go from here. Everybody was operating on variable interest rates in the 80s. I, uh, I, first off, I like I like risk mitigants. Uh, most of my guests don't use those words. Uh, secondly, uh, you can't be a University of Nebraska Cornhusker because there's no way a person in Lincoln knows what risk mitigant means. I mean, come on. Come on. That's not that's not that's not fully fair. <laughs> uh, are you actually a Nebraska Cornhusker? Um, I am a Nebraska fan. Yep. All right. So here's my thing. Um, <clears throat> uh, agreed on the adjustable rate. Now, I mean, we're talking. If you knew about the '80s. 18% interest and people are like, oh, bullshit. There's no way. I'm like, anybody that's like 35 years old right now has heard this. And again, they don't really get it. And I, I say it all the time. I'm not going to carry on walking up, st- up the hill to school both ways, but I can tell you how the 80s worked. There were some farming operations that were so underwater, the bank wouldn't even repossess them. The bank didn't want that debt. Sure. And that's a true story. So that's yeah. how things were. But also 18% interest seems ridiculous that I ever even got there that you'd have to you'd have to be making 25% margins to justify an 18% note and, and the fact that it wasn't there. So yeah, the interest rates now, we can lock in historically low interest rates, um, but you can't get those rates now. You might have some 2.9 money or some 3.2 money or something that you did a couple of years ago. What's interest rates right now? If I come to Farm Credit Services of America right now in summer of 2022 and I want to buy a quarter section down the road here, what am I going to pay you in interest? So 20 or 25 year term fixed for the full price, you're, it's going to start with a six, which is very different than <clears throat> six, nine months ago when that was probably in the low fours. Yeah. Um, and, and a year and a half to two years ago, it was... Threes. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I'm going to be paying six point something. Uh, can I justify buying real estate at these numbers? Agricultural real estate is crazy. Can I buy it at 6.2% interest at uh, these kind of multiples? Yeah. It's happening every day. Mm-hmm. And that decision point isn't based on that individual farm that decision you're making because you know it, let's let's take the you know everybody talks about twenty five thousand dollar an acre farm ground in Iowa yeah. financing it at six percent. Well, first off, that's not every acre. That, that was one. That was that was one farm and yeah somewhere. Well, yeah. well, that was one farm, and today um, there's more farms that are they're selling in that range all the time. Yeah. Right. But my point being is no, you can't buy that farm, finance it at you know. Uh, a high percentage of that and anticipate any form of cash flow. Mm-hmm. 
But the important piece I'll tell you, people that are buying that have a significant amount of ground without debt. This is incremental to their operation and the impact to their overall cost structure sure. is not as material as what it is if you look sure. at it just individually. It's, it's the dollar cost averaging effect mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. the 160 that they inherited from grandpa, they're in it for zero. And then the 160 that they bought, they're in it for two grand an acre. And then the next thing, and then, so yeah, so you dollar cost average it down and that 25 grand an acre across their entire operation ends up being purchased at about $8,000 if you spread the acres. I want to hear about this, and I want to talk about where interest rates are headed and what impact it's going to have on operating loans. Before I do that, I want to hear from our good friends and sponsor at Pattern Ag. Hey, folks, got a question for my farmer and landowner friends out there. Have you ever lost yield to an unexpected pest or disease? Of course you have. Every season, you're forced to guess about some of your most important management decisions. What if I told you that you don't have to anymore? Pattern Ag offers the most advanced soil analysis available today. In addition to a comprehensive nutrient analysis like any soil survey would give you, Pattern can predict next season's risk from the most damaging of pests and diseases. Things like corn rootworm, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome, and more. For the first time ever, a single soil analysis can help you optimize your crop protection and fertility spend at a subfield, field, and operational level. Isn't it time to refine your management decisions, optimize your inputs, and maximize your yield? Of course it is. Go to www.pattern.ag and get started today. All right, we're back here. Tim Cook, Chief Credit Officer, Farm Credit Services of America. Interest rates. Um, you talked about if I want to buy the 160 acres down the road, I'm paying 6 point some percent interest if I borrow from you. Am I going to get cheaper than that if I go to my local uh, community ag bank? Is Farm Credit Services America the same interest rate as every other ag lender? I won't say that every ag lender is the same interest rate, um, and, and that changes over time. There are periods where our funding mechanism is more competitive. There are uh, time frames when other lenders have different sources of, of funds. In a rising rate environment, um, those lenders that are funding their loans with deposits, um, those of uh, you and your listeners that have money in the bank, that's lagging. It's not going up at the same pace in which lending rates are. So, um, no, what, what we try to ensure is that our rates are competitive all the time. Not always the lowest, um, but always have to certainly be be competitive. So I think for the most part, uh, everybody's rates, you know, taken over a period of time are very, 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 very similar. Uh, in a given geography, speaking of the community bank, there's a whole hell of a lot of people that are trying to be ag lenders. Uh, there's in your in your geography, you've got obviously ag banks, and then you've got the big the big kids also. You know, the rabbit banks or whatever. Mm-hmm. What's it look like? Is it more competitive? Is it the same in your thirty years? Does it look the same? Does it look more competitive? Uh, the loans are bigger, probably. What's it look like? Yeah, I think it's more competitive today, um, and I think the reason it feels and looks more competitive is you've got consolidation in the banking sector. So you've got more, you got fewer banks. Mm-hmm. You've got consolidation in agriculture mm-hmm. chasing fewer operations. <laughs> right, and you know it's it's not a secret. We're all chasing you know the the long term viable the 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 winners. So everybody's chasing the same client base. So. Mm-hmm. 
it is more competitive, and it certainly feels more competitive today. Yeah, so we've got 100 and, uh, 105,000 farming operations that essentially account for 75% of all of our agricultural output. Um, I, a person in ag told me that we've got something like 174,000 farming operations that are over 1,000 acres of uh, you know, commodity production, which sounds like almost nothing when you, you know, the average American reads in the paper and says, well, there's 2 million farms in America. I'm like, yeah. And about a couple hundred thousand of them are doing all the heavy lifting. Yes. And that's, who, that's who's borrowing money from you. Mm-hmm. But you, you look at your book of business, you're almost all there. Farm credit gets knocked by ag banks or by community banks that you guys stepped into residential development in rural America. At least my farm credit did. Is that happening? Are you still doing that? What's that look like? Your book of business that goes to residential construction to build a house out in the country. Is that happening? Yeah, um, we we offer those products. We offer those products primarily to full and part time farmers and, and ranchers. So you know, our objective is if we're going to do business with somebody, we want to be able to provide all of their their financing needs, especially if they're a, a full time farmer. So it, it's a little different dynamic in different parts uh, of the country. You know, you, you drove from Grand Island uh, out here to um, Mullen. Mm-hmm. There's not acreage is you know everywhere there so our our financing of um residential dwellings mm-hmm. is primarily to full and at least part-time farmers okay um <clears throat> the interest rate scenario um are we going to see something crazy are we going to see double digit inflation or interest rates to combat this whole inflationary pressure i bought my first house in 1996 i paid seven uh it was a 725 balloon, meaning it was a seven-year fixed, mm-hmm. uh, 723 balloon, I'm sorry, and then a uh, seven-year fixed, and it adjusted after that, which I didn't keep it for that long anyway, and I believe I paid 7.375 interest rate, maybe seven and a half interest rate. Now you're talking about, we saw 2.5, 3, 3% interest rates, and now you're up from there. Where do we go back to? You know, I, I think... I've said for a long time that we're going to see upward pressure on interest rates. And we are. Ma- many of those years, <clears throat> I was wrong. We didn't see that, but it was influenced by outside factors. So I think it's pretty clear now that the Fed is chasing inflation and short-term rates are certainly headed up. How high is probably a, a, a question that, that we don't know the answer. Now, I can also make a case that with the turmoil that's going on globally and some of those sovereign dollars looking for a safe place, where's that? That's probably the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think we could see a flattening of the yield curve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, I, one of the things that I pay attention to is the, the 10-year Treasury as an indicator of what's our funding costs doing and what's our, our loans doing. You know, we spent a fair amount of time in the one-and-a-half range. We jumped up to, I think we got... 325, 330, and we've actually seen those rates pull back a little bit. I, we're in the, you know, as of the first part of June of 2022, we're 2829 range. So, Tim, you could make the argument that right now is about where our interest is going to stay. I'm not smart enough to make that call, but I don't think we're going to see interest rates run away from us, mm-hmm. especially on the long term side. You you use a term that uh, that you and I know what it means, and and. Uh, 
some people might be embarrassed to admit they don't, but we heard a lot, flattening of the yield curve. Put that in layman's terms. Why does anybody even need to know what that means? Yeah. So the yield curve is really a reflection of where longer term rates are relative to shorter term rates. And historically, you pay a premium for 20-year fixed rates as opposed to variable (laughs) rate money. Um, As it's indicative of where rates are headed, if the Fed is is pushing up short-term interest rates, we'll refer to that as prime, Mm -hmm. um, generally, long-term rates go along with that Mm -hmm. until the market sees that, okay, maybe short-term rates will come down at some point in time, and then you start to see a flattening of the yield curve. You know, we went through a period of time where, you know, you could borrow long-term money for about the same price as you could, you know, short-term variable rate money. And in I, which I, case, you should go ahead and borrow the long-term. And, and we talked about one of those differences between the 80s and today, yeah. and that's people did lock in those rates for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. You know, as we now, talked now, to customers. Now. yeah. And back then, people got caught with their pants down because their, their, their rates were high, uh, or or they weren't long term enough, and then all of a sudden there's no cash flow. You don't have you don't have a good financial picture, and all of a sudden you also are obligating higher interest notes. Yep, and that opportunity to fix those rates at that time just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know the the debt markets are very very different. So um, did we do did, did we did we unnecessarily destroy a lot of farming operations in the '80s because we didn't have the right structure in place? And I'm not talking about at the farm. I'm talking about from the lending. Yeah. And and I think that's what a big change was and, and, and why this exists today. But but farm credit doesn't, farm credit services doesn't set the interest rates. It's it's imposed upon you from the money market. So it's not, it's not farm credit services fault. No, we don't lie. We don't, we don't set the interest rates. I, I don't, you know, I wasn't in the business at then and there may have been fixed rates. It was just a mentality that, Everybody financed everything yeah. on a on a variable rate product, <clears throat> and also obviously the income went to hell, and and uh, and also there were some crappy operators. I mean, that's the other thing that, as much as we want to feel bad about it, there were some some of the people that some of the people that lost everything. It wasn't just because they got struck by lightning. I mean, it oh. was because they had some some financial ill health. People got over leveraged, and you know, at that point in time, lending was largely based on. I'll lend you a certain percentage of your collateral value. Yeah, as as we've seen, and, I, and we're not so alone a, in this. Asset loans versus re- revenue, be ability to pay back loans is what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it, it's cash flow lending is what it is. Now, as, now, as as we saw um, real estate prices chase up in the 2008 to 2012 timeframe. Um, organizationally, we and other lenders capped how much. We would lend on that to prevent over leveraging at a point we we knew margins were coming back down. Sure, right. That same environment exists today. Yeah, right now you say, well, this ground is worth uh, twenty five thousand dollars, which is not in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you can do asset to asset to, to debt ratio, but the problem is that still doesn't obligate the payment. Mm-hmm. So you're now saying it's about the revenue. Which brings us to crop insurance. You brought it up earlier. Yep. That's one of the things you say will not allow, allow us to be like the 1980s again. Because you're saying that all the lenders are being smart and they're doing it on revenue, not on assets. Is that true? Most lenders you are being smart. There's some lenders that still say, I got the dirt, I can't get hurt. So as long as it's an asset loan. 
There, there are some. I think those are much, much less prevalent today. But there are some that are looking at a safe loan. You know, let's let's go back and do a history lesson. Um, when real estate prices peaked in 2013, they came back about in the in the Midwest. I'm talking about crop production ground. They came back about 25 to 30 percent. Yeah, I mean, did re- reduced back. Yeah, yeah. I'd say they lost about. They got to a peak, then they came down twenty five. Yep. They'd gone up a hundred and some percent. Yeah, they yeah. came down twenty five percent. they came, So if you were lending at the peak, yeah, and you came back to where that was, as long as you weren't lending, you know, and most lenders that look at a value, we're looking at sixty percent loan to value. Yeah, you lend sixty percent, it comes back thirty. You're still not underwater. Sure. Right. So that's why there wasn't significant pain through that, even if you were looking at it from yeah. a, a collateral standpoint versus a cash flow. Yeah, standpoint. because because they didn't they didn't do zero down payment loans like the housing uh, fiasco yeah. was fifteen years ago here yeah. in uh, the United States. Okay, um, crop insurance. There wasn't as many acres insured through the crop insurance program, and there are people that c- complain about the crop insurance situation, but it does do one thing: it guarantees. Uh, that our farming operations do stay solvent. It's a heck of a deal when you think about it. Um, my farm buddies, when they r- razz me about my business and how I don't work hard, and I say, hey, you're right. You know you, you know what? But I've never had a federal program that guarantees me net positive revenue just for existing as a business. And the crop insurance program does do that, right? Well, at all times, it doesn't guarantee a net positive revenue. Um, it doesn't guarantee a margin. That's just... It guarantees, it guarantees it, revenue. It does. It does and put it's a safety net. it's generally been enough revenue to guarantee you even positive mm-hmm. revenue, right? Positive revenue. Yes, not positive margin. Yes. The important differentiator. But, you know, if you think about the risk that exists in agriculture that's different in your business or a manufacturing business, weather is unpredictable, uncontrollable, mm-hmm. and that's why crop insurance is critical to provide that safety net. Um, <clears throat> is it subsidized? Yes. Um, I look at it and also say that if, if the U.S. government was, wasn't subsidizing crop insurance, we would spend similar dollars in the form of disaster payments and other things to ensure that agriculture stays solid. Yeah, right. So it's good for you guys because uh, if you're a bank, you say, all right, um, we'll give you this loan. We already run your numbers. We like it. But now also you've got this crop insurance policy that makes it so that we're not on the hook. So essentially, you're never taking a risk. Farm Credit Service is just out here making all this easy money, and you never have to actually do any risk-taking to make your money. Am I right? That's a very inaccurate statement. Um, because, like as we talked about, crop insurance does not guarantee a profit. It does not guarantee cash flow. It prevents a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen plenty of instances where, you know, crop insurance... It, most, you know, people are taking, oh, let's call it 75 to 80% coverage. They're still a twenty percent deductible, and in a business that has pretty thin margins, yeah, right. Twenty percent is a big deal. Uh, what am I not seeing, or what is anybody that's listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast not seeing that maybe you are? We talk about looking under the hood. Looks like the farm's financial situation is really good. Uh, most of them are not heavily indebted. Do we have a number across your across your um, uh, forty billion dollars of loans? What's the percentage on debt to asset there? Do you have a number? Um, Are you loaning $40 billion against $80 billion of assets? 
And of course, sometimes it's not even about the asset because it's going to be an operating loan, right? Yeah, and it's it's very very different across those individual industries. Mm-hmm. But I would say, on average, um, if you look at crop production today, there's probably sixty or seventy percent equity mm-hmm. in, in those operations, just mm-hmm. because of the real estate value increase mm-hmm. that exists. Um, now, you know, you can look back over five years where cash flows got pretty tight. Um, there was still plenty of assets, Mm -hmm. but assets in and of themselves don't repay loans. Mm -hmm. It doesn't repay debt. It's the margin. It's the earnings capability on that. So while it is something we look at, just the the amount of leverage is indicative of profitability. It's every individual operation. You have to look at their own cost of production, and that's what ultimately repays those loans. There were dire predictions as recently as about, uh, say, January, February, that, oh, my God, it was going to be, you know, it's going to be a bloodbath out here in agriculture in 2022. Glyphosate's up four to five times what it was a year ago. Fertilizer prices. And all of a sudden, and I mean all of a sudden, like within about 60 days, the whole narrative changed like, oh, wait a minute, we're going to be all right. To where now it looks like it's going to be a maybe a record year. Yeah, the the narrative changed because um, the demand side of global agriculture changed as you know people became fearful about whether or not wheat was going to come out of Ukraine, yep. uh, what was going to happen with Russia. So you know I would say the the demand side changed dramatically, and the supply. Uh, I'm sorry, the supply side changed dramatically and the demand side has been really, really strong mm-hmm. as we've come out of COVID. Um, you know, the economy's opened back up. We talked about, you know, we put a lot of stimulus money in the hands of the U.S. consumer. So, so. let's talk about that. And I know we're supposed to stick with finance. Um, I could argue that uh, these prices aren't even really about supply and demand because we didn't double our consumption of stuff and supply while Ukraine is and wheat in in Russia is not insignificant. Russia's still growing wheat, correct? They are, but is anybody going to buy it? Well, that's that's the thing. So that's why that's an artificial um, supply constraint on the corn and soybean front. Are we really altering the supply that much? Of course, we don't know because it's just summer right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know. Yes, you can look at that and say, okay, the price up. 60, 70%, whatever, you know, wherever your, your starting point is. But the increase is around the margins, mm-hmm. right? You know, even if you take 10% of global corn production out of Ukraine right. and take that off, that 10% is huge. You don't, you don't yeah, have so, to double so, demand. So a, a doubling in price, and that's the thing that's interesting for folks to not, you know, that maybe they don't think about it. You don't double the price of corn because there's half the supply. You double it because there's 10% less supply, yeah. and it just becomes that much more demand for it because we just, we're, we're that we're that close on our carryover. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a commodity that, yes, you can store it, but you can't store it. Indefinitely. You know, indefinitely. Right. You can't, you know, China has tried that. I think that's another, you know, piece that we haven't talked about that's, you know, impacting these current prices is, as China rebuilds their um, their sow herd after uh, African swine fever, they're looking to rebuild their inventories. You know, most of the inventory of corn in the uh, globally is in China. Right now, do we really know what those numbers are? No, probably not. But that's the big change over the last twelve to eighteen months is China re-entering the market for U.S. corn, which they haven't historically been in. <clears throat> so I said, what are we not seeing that you are if you look under the hood? 
Uh, I, I, st- I went straight to the fact that it looks like at the farm gate, things are really darn good. Is there, some, is there, any, is there anything that we're not seeing that gives you alarm? Yeah, I mean, uh, the cure for high prices is high prices. Yeah, we're talking about and, a, the commodities. We're talking about interest rates being high prices. I'm talking about commodities. Okay. Um, I'm not as concerned about interest rates. Um, you know, if you look at short-term interest rates, you're, if you look at you're, operating you're, you're funds. You're charging them, not paying them. Remember, Tim, that's how that works. You're, I understand. I'm not as concerned about people paying me more than they used to either. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, if, if you look at interest expense as a percentage of the total operating costs, it's really, really small today. You know, I did some math one day, an average size operation, and you have to make some assumptions on how much they're borrowing to put that crop in the ground. But a 200 basis point, uh, a 2% increase in interest rates, that's less than 10 cents a bushel, Mm -hmm. right? That can be made up in a lot of different ways. So that's why I'm not as concerned about interest rates getting away from us or having a material impact on farm profitability. Okay. Fertilizer prices, much bigger impact. Yeah. Increases in equipment costs, land rent, that's where we're going to see profit margins change, not as much around interest rates. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. You know, uh, you, you can charge 10% more for uh, for your farm ground. The equipment dealer is going to charge you 25% more for a new piece, a new implement. And uh, the fertilizer uh, cost is going to be well. We saw two to more than two times. Now those prices are going to come down, is, is my understanding. Uh, and maybe they shouldn't have been as high as they were. What's your thought? Yeah, I, I think they will come down. I mean, some of it's supply of products, some of it's logistics, it's supply chain, and, and, and we'll get that stuff worked out. So it will come down. But I also talked about the cure for high prices being high prices. Um, we will see a demand response. We'll see a supply response. Mm. Um, I personally don't feel like $7 corn is, is long-term. Um, you know, uh, we'll see what the time frame is. So it's, as we, as we said early on, margins are going to get tighter. Mm. We've seen it time and time again. Um, how quick will that happen? When will it happen? I think 2022 is um, going to look really, really good. I think depending on how quick this uh, tensions in uh, Russia and Ukraine gets resolved, 2023 could be pretty good too, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that's on the grain side. If, if I have a point where I'm maybe a little bit concerned, it's on the protein side. The consumers of high-priced feed mm-hmm. and dependence on export activity globally when you know the impacts in Europe, uh, in Africa are going to be very, very different than we're seeing here, and will we continue to see strong demand for protein globally? That's what could create some challenges here within cattle, hogs, poultry, um, and even the U.S. consumer. Right? If if you're spending five dollars and fifty cents a gallon to fill up your new suburban. To go to the grocery store, are you going to opt for that chicken or that ribeye? Yeah, well, that's the old, the old protein trade-off. You go from you know steak to burger, burger to pork chops, pork chops to poultry, and poultry to spam, I guess. Um, there's going to be some some skinnying there, I'd say for sure. <clears throat> what else are you saying? Last thought here, I guess. Let's just do that. Last thought uh, on the way out the door here. From uh, your perch as the chief credit officer for a major agricultural lender that's in five states that has $40 billion of agricultural loans out at any given moment right now. 
What do you what do you got in way of your thoughts? I think U.S. agriculture is positioned pretty well mm-hmm. to provide food to uh, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got good logistics. There's yeah. not many other places that can get the product to the ports and get it exported. Um, we've got good processing capacity. Yep. Um, we've got a stable currency. Um, and, you know, technology is another big factor. We're, yep. we're leading um, the world around ag technology, and that's going to be really, really important as labor continues to tighten up. So I, I, I think that, you know, the U.S. is really, really well positioned to uh, be a leader in, in agriculture. And as such, um, feel really good about the segment that, that we lend money to. And that's yeah, U.S. Think, agriculture. Yeah, I, think, I think you're right. And, um, and I think the, the era of, and I mean, you can call it knock on wood or whatever, the era of massive defaults and bloodbath and all that, I, I don't think it's here, and um, and when we saw it, it was for a lot of reasons, and and also let's I think that the operators that are out here now um, are probably better are probably better operators as well in terms of the business side. Yeah, if we think about that time frame from 2013 to 2018 or 19, things were pretty tough. Um, those that were over levered made some changes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also important to note that those producers that are uh, involved in production agriculture today financially are in a much better place today than they were five, six, seven years yeah, ago. Right. And that's put us in a place to be very competitive globally. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, your name is Tim Cook. You're the Chief Credit Officer, Farm Credit Services of America. If anybody wants to learn more about this, they can probably go to farmcreditservicesofamerica.com. That's correct. And if they really want to look you up because they think you're brilliant and they want you on their show, how should they find you? They can find me through that website as well. All right. It's Tim Cook, and it's spelled like the Koch brothers. He's not related. He told me that. He's not related to them. K-O-C-H. K-O-C-H. Tim Cook. Thanks for being here. By the way, dear listener, share this with your friend, agricultural and non-agricultural alike. We always keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the business of agriculture. And a big thank you to Nori. That's the Carbon Marketplace and Pattern Ag, predictive analysis of soil for your farm. So go check out nori.com or patternag.com for more from my awesome sponsors. Thanks for being here. Tune in next time. This episode of the Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com slash growers.